I want you to turn with me to the last book of Revelation, the 10th chapter in verse 7. And uh, we've been camping out in this section of Scripture for two weeks, and this is the last week we're moving forward from here. Uh, but I want to focus back on this uh, one, one verse of Scripture, actually two verses of Scripture, uh, one last time. Revelation chapter 10 and verse 6 and 7. Revelation chapter 10 verse 6 and 7. The title of my message this morning is Preparing for the Trumpet. Preparing for the Trumpet. Now in this section of Scripture, in verse 6 and 7, uh, I just need you to trust me that he's describing the last trumpet that will sound on the day when Jesus returns. Now, uh, if you weren't with us last week, that's what the message was uh, last week. You can go to our website and listen uh, to the sermon if you like to to get information about that. But I just want you to understand that uh, he's describing that last trumpet. You're saying, well, if it's the last trumpet, uh, then why does he have the rest of the book? You know, the trumpet sounds, all's over. Why does he have the rest of the book? Well, remember that Revelation is not a book to be studied or read in a linear fashion, uh, but rather it's a circular fashion. He describes the same events over and over and over again. So we come here to chapter 10, and this is a very crucial section. I'll talk to you in just a minute about why. And, uh, and, and he gives a preview of what's going to happen, but he doesn't answer uh, that. He doesn't finish that. Uh, he just hits it, and uh, then he causes suspense to, to rise and makes us uh, begin to wonder, okay, when's the trumpet going to sound? That's the idea that he wants uh, to give. In verse 6 and 7, I want to read these two verses of Scripture, and then I want you to talk amongst yourself about a question I'm going to give you. It says in verse 6, And he swore by, and this is the angel holding a little scroll. We read all about that last week. He says, He swore by all who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, and the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and, is all, and all that is in it. And he said, There will be no more delay. In other words, God's had enough. It's time for uh, uh, this world to end and what we know here to end uh, for uh, eternity of heaven and hell uh, to, to begin in our lives. And he says, uh, no more delay. But he says, but in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Preparing for the trumpet. What I want you to do is, I want you to think just a second, then turn to your neighbor and discuss this question. Now, your answer has to be in about 15 seconds, not for 15 minutes, all right? Uh, because you want your neighbor to be able to answer and respond back to you. This is the question. If you are a disciple of Jesus, if you're a disciple of Jesus, what has helped you grow most in being a disciple of Jesus, all right? If you're a disciple of Jesus... What has helped you grow most? All right, talk amongst yourself. You've got about 15 seconds each to tell your answer to the question and then uh, hear your neighbor's answer. All right, either y'all don't have a clue or you're done talking, you gave very, very fast answers, uh, and, and that's a good thing. We're going to talk about that this morning. What helps us grow as disciples of Jesus Christ? In other words, what helps us be prepared for the sounding of the trumpet? And that's crucial, that's key, and that's where we're going uh, this morning. 
Now, this section of Scripture is a critical section in the book of Revelation. If you've been with us for the last couple of months, we've been reading through and studying through uh, the book of Revelation, and this is kind of a turning point in the book. Because up until this point, the focus of the writer has been mainly on two things. Either it's been on the, uh, the followers of Jesus Christ, the disciples of Jesus Christ. He describes seven different churches in chapters 2 and 3. He talks about uh, you know, encouraging them to stay faithful to Jesus. He also talks about the sealing in chapter 7 that all disciples of Jesus have received. Now, you will remember what the seal of God on the, disciple, uh, on the disciple is. What is it? It's in the life of every disciple. What is it? It's the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, imprinting the presence of God in our lives. We're going to talk about that this morning and the impact that that should be having in your life. Now, you come, uh, and, and then the other thing that he talks about in the first half, uh, first ten chapters, uh, not just about the disciples of Jesus, but also... He talks about God in all his magnificence and his glory. He describes his throne room, chapter 4. He talks about the Lamb of God, chapter 5. We prayed out of that before communion this morning. Uh, and, and he talks about these tremendous warnings that God throws on people, Christians and non-Christians alike, to get us ready to hear the trumpet. That's the theme of the first 10 chapters, all right? Now, in chapter 11... Kind of, it's like this is another section, another major heading, and he moves from chapter 11 on to the end of the book, and he identifies a, another major character. Christians, disciples, one, God and, and Jesus, two, and here he identifies another major player or character in the story, and that is Satan and all of his cohorts. And he talks about the eternal conflict between, or, or the magnificent conflict between God and those who follow him and Satan and those who follow him. Now, it gives a preview of this in the first uh, 14 verses of the 11th chapter. Just read this section of Scripture and, and don't fret over trying to understand, okay, what's this word and that word supposed to mean? But what I want you to notice is this magnificent, uh, terrible, horrific, conflict between God and the forces of evil. All right, let's read together. He says, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshipers there. But exclude the outer court, do not measure it because it's been given to the Gentiles and they will trample on the holy city for 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 120, uh, I'm sorry, 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord uh, of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from out of their mouth and devours their enemies. This is how uh, anyone who wants to harm them must die. And these, these men have power to shut up the sky so they'll not rain during the time of, they are prophesying, and they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague that is off, uh, uh, as often as they want. Those are those of God, the prophets of God. That's the power of righteousness and good. But then we turn to the power of Satan and uh, his, uh, 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 his fight against the power forces of God. He says, verse 7, And now they, uh, when they have finished te their testimony, the beast that comes out of the abyss will attack them and overpower them 
and kill them, and their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where, uh, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and will refuse to bury uh, their burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate uh, by sending each other gifts because these two prophets who had tormented those who live on uh, the earth. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And when they uh, went up to heaven in a cloud, while the enemy, their enemies looked on. At that hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed, and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors uh, were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. The third woe is coming. Now, my goal for this year, if you've been with us, my goal in my preaching this year is to create disciples that are eternity-focused, that take their minds just off the stuff of this world and how to uh, get uh, through day-to-day chores and activities and focus on eternal things. Because, folks, if you live to be 120 going to be like a snap of a finger compared to how long you'll live someplace in eternity. Because everybody's going to live in eternity, either in heaven or in hell. The question, though, is how can you and I best prepare ourselves for the trumpet sound that will put us either in heaven or hell? Now, Matthew chapter 24, you can leave Revelation. We're not going to come back this morning. I'm teaching out of that, that massive conflict between good and evil and teaching out of that. And I want you to turn with me to a statement that Jesus makes in Matthew chapter 24. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus describes the disciples, uh, his disciples, just preceding his return. And I want you to read this section of Scripture just honestly. I want you to ask yourself, Does this describe disciples in our day, at least in our country, uh, very, very clearly? I think it does. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 12 uh, and 13, Jesus says, Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most, most disciples, will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Jesus gives two firm warnings. He says because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most people that know Jesus will fall away. Now, I've got to ask you the question, why will wickedness increase as the day for Jesus' coming uh, is on its, on its way soon? And who is increasing that wickedness? I have to go too far to realize it's Satan himself, right? We live in a time that Satan is stepping up uh, his attack against followers of Jesus like never before. Is there anybody here this morning that would say wickedness is not increasing in our day? Absolutely not, man. You see it everywhere. But Jesus gives uh, three things that we can understand about uh, about this section of Scripture. He says wickedness, number one, is increasing. Number two, he says the number of people standing firm in the spiritual battle is decreasing. 
Jesus says only those who stand firm, stand their ground. Uh, it's a military term. It's about soldiers or, or, or Marines or naval personnel, anyone in the military, man, who understands the ground that we are holding cannot be given up. It's not a physical conflict we're in, but we're in a spiritual conflict. And it's only the individuals that are following Jesus that said, I will not give up this sacred ground that will stand firm to the end. The question is, are you standing firm to the end? Three things that we see about this section of Scripture. Number one, wickedness is increasing. Number two, the number of individuals who are standing firm in the spiritual battle is decreasing every single day. And number three, the number of those falling away from the faith is, uh, is staggering, is staggering in our time. Now I want us to go back to the book of Matthew chapter 7, a section that I shared with you last week, and I want to go back there, and I want you to read one section. Jesus talks about individuals who will not be ready for the sounding of the trumpet. In verse 13, 14, he says, lost people will not be ready for the sounding of the trumpet. And then verse 21 to 23, we talked last week, Jesus said that a lot of people in the church will not be ready for the sounding of the trumpet. And I want you to listen very carefully, uh, and read very carefully what Jesus says in verse 21. This is right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and perhaps the very core of what Jesus was trying to get across in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. A lot of people say, Lord, 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 Lord. Jesus says, not what you say that will cause you to enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. For you to be prepared for the sounding of the trumpet, there are three things that I want to give you today that you must know and do in an increasing uh, level for you to be prepared for the, for the trumpet. Let me give them to you this morning, and I want you to jot down some things. i got a lot I want to give you, but I want to focus you on uh, what it means to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ. First thing that I want you to write down, top of your notes section or, or, or in your journal, I want you to write down that you must know what a disciple is. You must know what a disciple is. And you must obey Jesus in becoming one. Not just what you know, it's what you're doing. So you must know what a disciple of Jesus Christ is, and you must be obeying Jesus to become, to become one. To be able to define what a disciple is, I think the first thing we need to understand is to understand what a disciple of Jesus Christ is not. What I want you to understand is that a disciple, listen clear, cl uh, closely, I want you to understand this clearly. A disciple of Jesus is not somebody who believes in Jesus. You say, well, that doesn't make sense. It makes total sense. I just, according to Scripture, a disciple of Jesus is not somebody who simply believes in Jesus. You see, there are too many people around us today, including many of us here today, who equate believing in God with being a Christian. This is how it works out. I believe in God, thus I must be a Christian. And so I'm going to heaven because I believe in God. Now, if you think that statement through, you realize that just about everybody around you believes in God in one shape or form. I guarantee you, if we were to take a survey in Walmart this morning amongst people that don't go to church and haven't been to church in gazillion uh, uh, you know, Sundays, 
and asked them, do you believe in God? You know how many people would answer yes to that question? Almost 100%. Almost 100%. And so, just taking tracking that through, I believe in God, thus I must be a Christian. And since I believe in God, I must be on my way to heaven. That's exactly the attitude that most people in our country live with. I think that's why we're not very evangelistic. We believe that too. Satan has just lied to us and we've accepted that lie and we have the idea that everybody who believes in God, man, they're on their way to heaven and they're uh, they're a disciple of Jesus Christ. Can I tell you, that is absolutely a false lie. How do I know that? You know what the Bible says about believing in God? Write it down, James 2, chapter uh, chapter 2, verse 19. James, the half-brother of Jesus, says, even demons believe in God and they shudder. They shake in their boots. Folks, believing in God does not make you a Christian. The demons of hell believe in God. They shake in their boots because they know who God is and they know what God's going to do. Did you realize that the word Christian is only used three times in all of the Bible? The word Christian is only used three times in all the Bible. And this may shock you that the Bible never instructs us to make Christians. It never does. It never says, hey, go out there and make Christians. I only use three times. You know what the Bible does say we're supposed to be making? Anybody tell me? Somebody tell me. What? Disciples. Not believers. Not believers. Disciples of Jesus. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 to 20, Jesus said, all authority has been given to me. And so I tell you, go make what? Disciples of all nations. 270 times in the New Testament, the word disciple is used. Three times the word Christian is used. Now, what's the difference? What is a disciple of Jesus Christ? A disciple of Jesus Christ, we've already established, is not someone who just believes in Jesus, that just believes in God. That would make everybody a disciple, because just about everybody believes in God, but that's not the case at all. Jesus clearly defines for us what being a disciple really is. And I want to go back uh, to uh, the very first statement that Jesus gives about describing what a disciple is. Now, he builds on this as he goes through his ministry, but I want you to go back to chapter 4 of Matthew when Jesus called his very first two apostles, very first two disciples, uh, and I want you to notice how Jesus describes being a a disciple. I want to give you a three-part working definition this morning. Notice what it says in chapter 4, verse 18. It says, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon and Peter and his, bro- uh, Simon Peter and his brother Andrew. And they were casting nets into the lake, for they were fishermen. And here's the definition. And Jesus said, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And once they left their nets... And they followed him. Verse 21, 22, you read that the exact same thing happened uh, to James and John, Zebedee's two sons, uh, and they did exactly the same thing. Now let me give you a three-part definition of what being a disciple is. Write it down. This is critical that you understand. Number one, a disciple is a person who is following Jesus with his or her head. They are following Jesus with his or her head. Jesus said, come follow me. They have made a conscious decision to put Jesus as the head of their lives. Now I got to tell you this, we in the American church have, have totally flip-flopped 
what it means to follow Jesus. I completely flip-flop. You think about this with me, and I think you'll have to agree with, with me on this. What we have decided as American Christians is that we're going to lead, and it's up to Jesus to follow us, right? We're going to lead. We're going to decide what we want our lives to be like, and then we're going to pray, Lord, will you bless me? Would you make me happy? Would you take care of my life? But I'm in the driver's seat. How ridiculous is that? James, uh, uh, Peter and Andrew did not hear from Jesus, hey, where do y'all want to go and I want to follow you? What did he say? You come what? Follow me. You follow me. You understand the difference? It's not a subtle difference. It is a massive difference. Because what Jesus is calling all of us to do is in our head make him Lord and say, Lord, I will go wherever you lead me. And by the way, Lord, I want you to show me new heights every single day of my ministry, okay? Every single day of my life. Second part of this definition. Number one, a disciple is a person following Jesus with his head uh, or her head. Number two, a disciple is a person being changed by Jesus in his or her heart. A disciple is a person being changed by Jesus in his or her heart. Now, they made a conscious decision to follow Jesus, but they're saying, Lord Jesus, I want you to change me in my heart. Now, watch what Jesus says here. You come follow me, and I will what? What's the next word? Go back to verse 19, okay? You come follow... Oh, y'all were writing. I apologize for that. Uh, I asked you to do two things at once. Go back to verse 19. You come follow me, and I will what? I will make you. He doesn't say you come follow me, and you learn how to do this. You come follow me, and I'll teach you a whole bunch of rules to follow. That's not what he says, not at all. He says you come follow me, and I, I, I will make you into something. You see, being a disciple isn't about keeping a bunch of rules to ch learn how to change your actions. Being a disciple of Jesus is allowing Jesus to change our hearts so that he can change our actions on the outside. That's totally, completely different from any other religion in the world. And that is a significant difference. Friends, to follow Jesus is number one about following him in your head, being a disciple of Jesus is number two about being a person that he's changing on the inside out and thus changing your actions. Number three, a disciple is a person deployed in the mission of Jesus with his hands uh, or her hands. Now notice what he says. You're writing that down, and I'll, I'll give you a break here. You can't do two things at once, so I want to ask you another question uh, while you're writing. But notice what Jesus, listen to what Jesus says. He says, come follow me. That's making a decision to follow him in our head, and I will make you, that's saying, I, I, I'm going to work from the inside out. And he said, I'm going to make you into something. What's that? Fishers of men. Now, why did Jesus say, I'm going to make you into fishers of men? Huh? Not because that's some special gizmo word. What were these guys? They were fishermen, all right? They were, they were fishermen. And what Jesus was saying is, you come follow me, and I'm going to help you understand how to get other people that fish too to become followers of me as well, all right? Now, I'm not a fisherman. I'm a preacher, okay? 
Uh, you're, uh, do we have any fisher, any, I mean, professional fishermen here, all right? We're down at the beach, we probably would have somebody, we don't have any. Do we have anybody here as a school teacher? Anybody school teacher? I work in school system. All right, good. Do we have anybody that's uh, a doctor or a nurse? Anybody in a uh, medical, uh, healthcare professional? Okay, got some of those. Uh, have anybody that works in business? Uh, you work in an office. Anyway, anybody work in an office, all right? Uh, anybody that does anything else? Uh, raise, raise your hand, all right? All right. The idea is this, folks. If you'll follow Jesus, he's going to make you into the type of person that will allow you to reach other people around your sphere of influence for him. Does that make sense? In other words, you don't have to quit your job, become a fisherman to be a disciple of Jesus. You just got to do whatever you're doing and draw people to Jesus. You see, a disciple is a person deployed in the mission that sees that Jesus has a mission and he's using his hands uh, to, in effect, make disciples for Jesus. Someone has put it this way. Jesus uh, gives his mission, and mission for church right here. Uh, he says it's, it's uh, uh, to make disciples for Jesus who can make disciples for Jesus. That's simple. Jesus wants to make disciples who just simply know how to make disciples. Now, I've got to ask you a question, and this application, which one of these three do you need to step up in most. Honestly, which one do you need to step up in most? Is it following Jesus with your head? Is it following Jesus uh, being changed in your heart through the Holy Spirit? Or is it being deployed in the mission of Jesus? All right? All three of those things are critical. They all got to work together, hand in hand. But which one of the three do you need to step up in most? All right, let's move to the second thing that you need to know and do to be ready for the, hearing the trumpet. And that is you need to know the, the stages of discipleship be able to identify where you are in one of those stages and then obey Jesus to grow up in them. Now, J John was one of the first four guys to hear Jesus talk about, I want you to become a disciple. And I want you to turn with me over to the book of 1 John because in 1 John, his first little letter there, this is the same guy that receives the book of Revelation, by the way. In John, 1 John chapter 1 and 2, Jesus, uh, John rather describes five critical stages of discipleship that everybody here uh, is, is in one of these five stages. Everybody here is in one of these five stages. Let's talk about them. The first stage is the person who is spiritually dead. You might want to just draw, draw these five circles when we get to them, but number one, they are a person who is spiritually dead. That's the first stage. In chapter 1 and verse 5 through 9, he describes that person. He says, this is a message that we have heard from him, from Jesus, and declare to you that God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. He said, if we claim to have fellowship with him but walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us, cleanses us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful and just or righteous, and he will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You know what Jesus says to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and verse 3? Nicodemus was not a follower of Jesus Christ. You know where he said you have to start? He said nobody can see the kingdom of God unless he is what? Born again. Born again. Now, this is what I want to say to you this morning. The most critical thing for you to know is whether or not you've been born again. Because if you had not been born again, you cannot grow in discipleship at all. 
And you ought to know that. There ought to be a time when you stepped over from spiritual deadness to becoming a, a, a child of God, and that's called being born again. And if you don't know whether or not that's ever happened in your life, Aaron and I are going to be here at the end of the service today, and we'd love to talk to you about that. We'll stay here as long as we got to stay here to talk to you about that because that's the most critical step that you can ever make in your life to be born again. That's the first uh, stage of discipleship. It's just being spiritually dead. Second stage, once a person is born again, they become what John calls a spiritual infant. That kind of makes sense. You're dead, you're born again, you become a spiritual infant. Go to chapter 2 and verse 12. This is incredible. John says, I write this to you, dear children. The phrase means infant. I write to you infant, not just kids. I'm writing to you infants, you toddlers, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, Peter says, uh, describes these individuals as newborn babies who crave pure spiritual milk so that they can grow up in their salvation. Spiritual infants are just like spiritual kids. They are messy, all right? They, they have blowouts every now and then. Uh, can I get an amen on that? You know, they don't act uh, the way uh, they should all the time. But they have an insatiable desire to grow. They want food. They want spiritual food. And they need a lot of it. And I'll give you this. Spiritual infants in the kingdom of God have lots of questions. Anybody ever had a kid or a grandkid that asked question after question after question after question? That's a spiritual infant. They're constantly asking questions, man. They're asking all the time because they want to grow. They want to know. The next level is what John refers to as a spiritual child. Now, there's a difference between a spiritual infant and a spiritual child. Let, uh, he describes it in verse 13. He says toward the end of verse 13, I write to you, dear children. The word there is a young child, elementary age child, or a junior high age kind of a child, because you have known the Father. Spiritual child, Matthew chapter 18, verse 3, Jesus says there are kingdom qualities that every disciple ought to have. They ought to be childlike, Jesus says, not childish, childlike. He said they ought to be innocent. They ought to be, have a desire to learn and experience new things. They ought to have an honesty and an integrity that all small children have. But write down Hebrews chapter 5 and 6, Hebrews 5 and 6, because there the Hebrew writer warns about disciples who stay at an elementary level all of their spiritual lives. And he says they need to grow up. They need to stop drinking milk. And they need to start eating meat. And folks, I want to tell you, there's some folks right here, I just want to be honest with you. It's time for you to grow up. It's time for you to stop drinking milk. It's time for you to start uh, uh, eating solid food. You know a third grader is cute most of the time, right? Most of the time. But a disciple of Jesus, who may be 30, 40, 50 years old, who's been a disciple of Jesus for 20, 30, 40 years, but who is still acting like a third grader, ain't cute anymore, right? There is something wrong with a child of Jesus Christ that is not maturing and growing up. Now, there's nothing wrong with being a spiritual child if that's where you are. But if you've been a Christian for 10, 15, 20 years and you're still a spiritual child, shame on you. Shame on you. The next level is a spiritual young adult. 
He goes on in 1 John chapter 12 and verse 13, the middle part there. He says, I write to you, young men, young adults, because you've overcome the evil one. I love this section of scripture. He says, young adults have overcome the evil one. They have won and they've lost some spiritual battles. And they understand by experience that being a disciple of Jesus Christ is a constant war. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12. And it is a fight every single day of their lives. So they understand what Jesus says uh, when he uh, explains in uh, Luke chapter 12 and verse 35 that you need to be dressed ready for service. They understand Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12 where Paul says you've got to put on the full armor of God to stand against the devil's schemes. Let me explain to you spiritual young adults. Spiritual young adults are not people that do it right all the time. Spiritual young adults have won some battles and they've lost some battles. But they are still standing firm. They're not giving up. They're not running for the backwoods. They are standing firm in the faith. And I'm going to use a military term. They're making sure that their battle buddies around them are standing firm as well. Last stage of spiritual maturity is the spiritual parent. Being a spiritual parent, he talks about that in and, and ch- uh, verse 13 as well. He says, I write to you fathers or parents because you've known him from who is from the beginning. Comes right down to verse 14, says exactly the same phrase again. Now, spiritual parents grasp the spiritual concept uh, that a lot of lesser disciples miss. They understand that in the end, God wins. And they understand that God is using them to accomplish something totally impossible in their lives. They're constantly saying, God, would you use me to make disciples of other individuals? And they are constantly looking around the block that they live in or around the world to find people that don't know Jesus so that they can parent new disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, how do you know which of those stages you're in? Just jot it down. It won't take time to turn. But Luke chapter 6, verse 45, uh, Luke, uh, Jesus said, Luke 6, 45, he says, out of the overflow of your mouth, your heart speaks. Out of the, what you say with your mouth gives away what's really in your heart. And it's true for each spiritual stage as well. You see, spiritually dead people say things like, man, there's many ways to God. Oh, the Bible's just a bunch of myths. I don't believe in hell. I believe everybody's going to go to heaven. I believe that God's loving, just cares for everybody, he's going to take everybody there. That's what spiritual dead people say. Spiritual infants say, man, I got to go to church. Man, I got to pray every day. I got to read my Bible. I've got so many questions, I just got to find answers to my questions. A spiritual child is type person says, I don't like all these new songs around here. I came to church today and nobody talked to me. Rather than saying, you know, I I didn't talk to anybody else either. Maybe that's why they didn't talk to me, you know. A spiritual child is the type of person that says, listen, I'm not getting fed here. So I guess what I need to do is move to another church. You know why church hopping? There's not a church in our community that's growing, that's not growing, except because of people hopping from one church to another church to another church. Spiritual children constantly do that because they've never realized that they've got to start feeding themselves. Spiritual young adults, man, you can tell they're young adults uh, because they constantly talk about, uh, in my quiet time, I learned this. 
Did you read this as we were studying together spiritual mentors? Or they say, I was witnessing to a friend of mine and he had some questions for me and I don't know how to answer them. Can you give me an answer? They're constantly saying things like that. Spiritual parents come to preach regularly and say, can I baptize another friend? Or they come and they constantly say, man, there's this community need that I see that I would like to head the charge uh, in in doing something about it. Not just saying, somebody down there needs to do something about this problem. I'm seeing a problem, I want to fix it in our world. Or they're talking about the mission trip they just went on. Or the mission trip they're getting ready to go on. Or the vision that God has for the ministry. Let me ask you a question. Actually, two questions. Number one, what stage are you in? Identify yourself as as what stage of spiritual growth are you in? There are five of them. You ought to be able to say, this is where I am, all right? Uh, Oftentimes, people are too harsh on themselves, all right? They they would not uh, set themselves where they probably really are. And so the other question I want to ask you is, how would your spouse or your family answer that question? How would people you go to church with answer that question about you? And more importantly, how would lost people answer that question about you? One last idea that you must understand and put into practice, and this is very, very brief. And uh, we talked about this last week, uh, but I want to throw it at you again this week at the end of the message. You must understand the components of discipleship and obey Jesus in saturating your life with each one of them. Now, what I want to teach you at the last section of the sermon, and this is very, very brief, I want to teach you that there are some common components at every level. Unless all these three things are working together, all of them working together, you're not going to go to the next level. And we'll talk about this more later, but uh, I am convinced that all three of these things have to be part of a person's life for them to move up in any way. Write them down. Number one, you must have the Word of God deeply embedded in your life. Uh, Gary, next, yeah, the Word of God. You've got to have the Word of God. And you've got to have the Word of God in your life. In uh, the book of Acts, write down Acts chapter 6 and verse 4, it says that the apostles dedicated themselves to the Word of God and to prayer. I don't care what level you are. If you are not dedicated to the Word of God, you're not going to grow. Jesus says, John 17, 17, Lord, sanctify them by truth, and your word is truth. If you're not in the word in an increasing way, now I want to tell you something, you're not going up in your discipleship process. And the amount of scripture that God's putting into your life uh, every day ought to be increasing as you go up. Does it make sense to you that a spiritual infant, you know, somebody just getting started, may not study as deeply as somebody that's a spiritual young adult. Does that make sense to you? What I want to say is, man, if you are saying, I think I'm a spiritual young adult, but you only read maybe a paragraph of Scripture one a week, you're, uh, once a week, you're not a spiritual adult. I don't care, uh, young adult, I don't care what you say, okay? You must have the Word of God increasing your life every single day. Number two, you must have the Spirit of God working in your life. The Spirit of God working in your life. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 through 29, uh, talks about uh, how God uh, works everything for good for those who love the Lord. But then the next verse of Scripture, verse 29, he goes on to say that God, the Holy Spirit, uses all of those circumstances of our life to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. We'll talk more about that. Number three, you have to have the people of God in your life. 
Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, uh, says, let us figure out how to encourage each other to step up in discipleship. The word literally is cattle prod. Uh, look around you this morning and uh, think to yourself, who is there sitting around you this morning? It may be you that just needs a good poke uh, in the uh, hind parts to get you to another level of discipleship. I mean, if you're sitting there saying, I don't need nobody, I'm good enough, and I can take care of my own spiritual growth, guess what? You probably are the worst spiritual child here, all right? Because you just realize, you got to have somebody else, man. Jesus never called a disciple to live by himself. He sent them out two by two. Jesus connected with 12 other guys and then closely with three other guys, and so must we. The question is, uh, without them working together at an increasing level, you're not going to advance in any stage of, of discipleship. Which of those are you most lacking in? Are you lacking in time in the Word? Are you lacking in understanding how the Holy Spirit can change your life? Are you lacking in being in a relationship with someone else? Without those three working together, man, it is not going to happen in your life. Well, you're wondering yourself, how come it's so hot and humid outside today? And I can tell you why. Daniel, Daniel you understand this. Uh, Daniel and I were in Honduras uh, back last, last March, and next Saturday we're getting ready to send uh, eight people from our church to Honduras, and uh, the Lord is just preparing them with perfect Honduran weather, right? Uh, you want to know what the weather's like uh, uh, 365 days a year in Honduras? Step outside this morning, all right? That's what it's like, uh, hot, humid, sticky, muggy. Uh, ladies, you fix your hair this morning, and you walk outside and it's gone. You know, that's, that's just Honduras. And uh, this is what we're going to do. We got some that are here that are on that team. We got eight folks. Some are in the first service, some are in the uh, second service. And we're just going to ask them to come down front right now. Uh, we're going to ask uh, John Bukowski and Dan Legg because they're helping lead up our uh, global missions charge and our elders to come down. Uh, we just want them uh, to anoint uh, our team uh, with, with oil. And uh, I'll identify who on the team's here. Santa, come right over here. And uh, I'll identify who's on the team, and uh, then I'm going to turn it over to Arthur, I, I think. Uh, this morning.